Greetings from Amiskwache Waskahagan here on Treaty 6 Territory. This is your host, Christina Harback, for Shout for Libraries. On today's episode, we'll be listening in on a conversation that happened on March 20th between some of the presenters at the Forum for Information Professionals, or FIP, conference, which was held back in February of 2023. The Forum for Information Professionals has been a long-time effort of students here at the University of Alberta in the MLIS program. All of the presenters you're hearing from today are students, and some of them are also correspondents here on Shout for Libraries. My name is Dan Hackborn. I'm a longtime contributor to Shout for Libraries and an MLIS candidate, and I presented at FIP 2023. Hi, my name is Maya. Um, I'm actually her. I am a mid-link contributor to Show for Libraries, and I also presented at FIP with Alessa. And hello, my name is Alessa Komarnitska, she, her. I'm in my second year of an MLIS, and I presented at FIP with Maya on the topics of uh, climate change and public libraries. Hello, my name is Michelle Moro, she, her. Um, I'm in my second year of the combined master's program in digital humanities and uh, SLIS. And I presented on special collections and climate change with Danielle. Hello, I'm Danielle Deschamps. I am also in a second year in the second year of um, the MLIS degree, and I also presented at FIP with Michaela. And my name is Paula Kerman. I, my pronouns are she and her, and I was the chair of the organizing committee for FIP 2023, and I'm in my second year in the online part-time MLIS program. So our theme this year was lists and the climate crisis, transforming talk into action and we made a as we always do a call for student presenters uh students do not necessarily have to present on the theme but most of the presenters did this year i think because it is such a timely and relevant topic and the emphasis on transforming talk into action i think is particularly important because there is a lot of talk about the climate crisis, but what do we do about it? And how does it fa- affect professions in LIS and the GLAM fields? And I was incredibly impressed with the quality of the presentations and the insight that they provided into this topic. So we're here today to kind of talk about those presentations and kind of summarize uh, what some of our student presenters discussed. So the topic that uh, Maya and I presented on, our presentation was based on a paper that we wrote for our collections management class, LIS 531, in the fall semester. And um, it was about the theme of uh, exploring a challenging side of collections development. And so we were really curious um, to explore the topic of uh, climate change materials, um, both physical books and ebooks and uh, public libraries. And um, so we had looked at how public libraries um, having this kind of ideal placements within their communities um, could become these educational halfway points between um, their communities um, and they could potentially help um, with the skepticism and acceptance of climate change. And so we explored several challenges that public libraries face. And we also looked at some case studies in that process. 
Yeah, some of the challenges that we looked at, we looked at um, like in developing a collection that is more geared towards climate change materials. We looked at climate change denial materials that already exist, um, whether or not we you should include those in your collection for the sake of like intellectual freedom. We also looked at um, a lack of materials that discuss the topic of eco-anxiety, which is like, which is quite prominent, especially among younger people and, and kids. We also, uh, part of our presentation was we looked at two case studies where we each looked at a, a library who we, that we felt was or wasn't creating a collection that supported uh, climate change education. Um, so the one that Alessa looked at was uh, Thunder Bay Public Library. Um, and the one that I looked at was Halifax Central Library. Yeah, and in the case of the Thunder Bay Public Library, um, what we found was my personal biggest takeaway from um, speaking with the collections director at that library was that um, what, like, what, whatever the solution is to climate change and public libraries and their role in that kind of battle um, was that it was so important to have this cooperative action happen within the community. Um, in the Thunder Bay Public Library example, um, they applied for strategic grants, but they also made um, relationships within their community with local environmental agencies and organizations, and that really helped them to have this really successful initiative in which they managed to manifest this physical co collection of climate change materials for their physical library locations. And yeah, I just thought that was a really great example of a case study to use for this presentation. And I looked at Halifax Central Library, and I looked at it because it's it's quite a, a large library in the Canadian library system. So they have you know quite a big budget, and they're one of the few larger libraries that includes um, like a climate change section of their website, section of their collection, which is not not common. And so I wanted to see basically like what what set them apart, and what I found was actually got in contact with somebody who submitted a proposal to create a climate change center in the Halifax Central Library, which would have housed like a climate change specific collection, climate change specific resources, and have hosted events and things like that. And basically what I looked into was that eventually this proposal was rejected by the library. And so my the point of my case study was to examine or think about how far libraries go to support climate change education um, and awareness and where they stop. This research, it was really interesting to see, for me personally, the role that public libraries can play in, in this and um, just how important it is for them to play this active role um, in our fight against climate change. And it was really interesting to see how it was kind of hard to compile research on this topic that was done in public libraries. So we really had to, I feel like, search far and wide to kind of bring it all together. Yeah, it was, it was definitely an interesting pr process. So it was nice to be able to share that research at the conference with everyone. I'm curious through the different, you had to search pretty far. I'm wondering if there was anything that you came across that you found really impressive or inspiring or something that, you know, you would hope that, you know, would become like a trend in libraries. Yeah, um, we found several examples. One was, I mean, one was just the Climate Change Center proposal in itself. So there was, you know, a group out there who was willing to 
jump through the hoops to find the funding, to find the time, to find the resources. And so it was interesting for us to see that, you know, obviously those groups exist, but getting them implemented, there's, there's so many barriers. Uh, and then another really cool uh, example we found was this, this children's library in, in uh, Sing- Singapore. Was it Singapore? Yeah. Yeah, Singapore. And um, they've basically created like a children's library that is entirely constructed out of recycled materials. It's like very specific to children's education about climate change. It's, it's, and it's in this, the beautiful shape of this beautiful tree. It's pretty incredible if you ever want to look up pictures and it's the tree itself is like interactive and apparently it's really well used. Wow. That sounds really awesome. I'm going to have to Google that after. After doing your research, did you feel hopeful or did you feel maybe a bit sad? What was your kind of emotional process after going through like so, so many, um, you know, different places and initiatives and things that were working and maybe a lot that weren't? Yeah, I think it made us realize because I like in in the example of the Halifax Public Library, I think the need and the desire to have this center built was was there. So I think it made us realize that there's just so many factors at play. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't work out, unfortunately, even though technically the resources are there. And so, yeah. And then, I mean, in the case of the Thunder Bay Library, um, sometimes it is quite successful. So it's just interesting to see how all of those forces can come and kind of have this thing come out of it. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it was, it was hopeful and it was, you know, good to see, um, it was good to be able to find these initiatives where people are doing something. We did have a lot of conversations while we were writing this paper about how exhausted and like ho- hopeless we felt. Um, and I think, you know, again, like, it's interesting, we're having this conversation in the shadow of the approval of like things like the Willow Project and stuff. So I think it's hard to feel hopeful, but it also, it's helpful to see things being done. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was, you know, as I'm sure everybody can relate to emotionally, a weird paper to write. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good answer. Thank you both. Danielle and Michelle. Do you want to talk about your presentation? Sure, we can start that. So we took a similar approach thinking about climate change in collections. Um, However, since we both work at Bruce Beale Special Collections here on campus, we decided to look at um, climate in perhaps more unique collections. So looking a lot at historical documents, more unique and rare books. And the goal was to sort of look at the past, present, and futures present within the more unique collections that we have and think about how the narrative of climate change can be connected and how it changes over time and how we can use some of the more unique materials within special collections libraries specifically to think about climate change as opposed to perhaps more general materials. Yeah, and we sort of um, kind of ended on a, on a point of this idea that special collections and archives kind of have a role or responsibility in, in um, collecting and making available materials that relate to climate change and the climate crisis. We found a lot of really interesting things um, in the process. Yeah, so we chose to focus mostly on artist books, uh, which are books that are almost exclusively found in special collections because they're 
rare and often have limited print runs. They're all made in very unique ways and tend to be more like uh, books as sculptures or kind of postmodern experimental thinking of the book as a form. And so within Special Collections, uh, we found quite a few artist books relating to the climate and the environmental movements. Um, including environmental movements that were present in some of our other collections. So for instance, we have entomology collections, environmental science collections, indigenous collections on the prairies um, that all have a lot of older historical documents and photographs and posters that sort of talk about climate and environment in the past. And so we thought it would be a good idea to connect these to the modern artist books that we have, which take a look at the consequences of the issues that arose in these books written 100 to 150 years ago, and to also look at artist books as a reflection on the future, since a lot of them take inspiration from speculative fiction as well. And so uh, using artist books kind of as our grounding of the narrative of climate change was kind of the goal of our presentation. I remember some of the artist books that you were showing during your, your presentation. They look so cool. It's too bad this is radio because people can't see the sl- some we, of the slides that describe- you used. Yeah, maybe we can describe a few since I do think artist books benefit from being a visual media. Uh, For instance, we have one that was kind of like a pop-up book with like layered pieces of paper uh, with the kind of front layers representing coral and the back layers, these white shapes of dead coral or ocean garbage to kind of talk about how we've destroyed the ocean climates that creatures live in um, through industrial practices. We had one called Alice and Antius, which was written here in Edmonton and has a lot of these beautiful printed pages against uh, poems and um, narratives and is kind of this speculative story about the climate becoming worse and worse in Edmonton. And it has pictures that I think as Canadians, we've all seen like melting ice caps and the sort of red sun from the forest fires. We also talked about Words on the Edge of the Abyss uh, which is collections of poems by a lot of famous Canadian poets, including Margaret Atwood. And uh, each poem essentially is on its own sheet typeset in different ways. And all of them are basically meant to be taken together as a collection about how all these poets felt about climate change. And then we talked about poems for an oil-free coast, uh, which had a similar idea to Words on the Edge of the Abyss and um, had each poem with a translucent sheet that was marbled to look like an oil spill. We also talked about Martyr, Mercury, and Rooster, which was a set of three books made of recycled paper. Mostly it looked at kind of the failure of industry and using unsustainable substances and practices as a way that destroyed human life. They're all very like interesting books, but that kind of go about things in different ways in the ways that they use like materials or graphic design or fiction versus poetry versus just imagery, Uh, but they all talk about the same themes, which we thought was interesting. So yeah, we connected them to uh, people like, oh my gosh, I can't remember their full names. I can jump in. (laughs) Yeah, please go ahead. uh, There was Alfred Russell Wallace, who had written about the extinction of animals and uh, risks of deforestation and soil erosion in, well, maybe I forget the year, but I think it was the late 1800s yeah. and Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau who were both you know um, writing about 
the the you know kind of poetic importance and beauty of nature yeah they were both uh early environmentalists from i believe they were both from england one of them might have been american uh but they wrote books that were very philosophical and reflective of man's place in nature and their regards to take care of it and so they were a big influence in really early environmentalist movements in the late 1800s and we also took a look at this government well i would say a uh, late 1800s sort of propaganda pamphlet where the um, Department of Agriculture was making a case to let, you know, European settlers basically know that actually it's not winter all the time in Canada and you could grow, grow crops here if you only just came over and how complex that is in in regards to what is happening now. Yeah, and then we also looked at Rachel Carson, who was a marine biologist who wrote a lot of books to try and educate the public on the different ocean ecosystems and climates within. She often made them very whimsical and like very personalized, kind of asking you to see things through the eyes of the creatures that live there. And she was also very important. She wrote in the first half of the 20th century and she was very instrumental in a lot of movements to preserve ocean climates and so we kind of connected all of these older um, editions of special volumes that were unique for their takes on climate specifically and connected them to the artist books that we had as well. In some ways you could consider Rachel Carson the person who started the modern environmental movement. So it's pretty interesting that as you bring up, that it's possible to see the textual history of what led to her famous book, Silent Spring, because that's a book that would be in many libraries these days, but providing access to the materials that would have led up to that is, like you mentioned, a pretty integral piece of what libraries do within this context. I wanted to ask you a question, if that's okay. Yes. And just pull out a bit to the work you do at Bruce Peel Special Collections. In her overview of uh, Canadian archives and whether they're prepared for climate change, Amanda Oliver basically did a survey of Canadian archivists and found that a majority of archives didn't have a disaster or emergency plan. Do you know if the Bruce Peel Special Collection does have a disaster or emergency plan? And I guess she also that... points out that a bunch of them are are situated in basements, which is the worst part of a building to deal with the floods that we can expect that are going to accompany climate change. Um, so I was wondering if you had heard anything at Bruce Peel about addressing that or moving out of the basement. So you mean like an environmental disaster then? Not like just like a general emergency thing, like a fire? Yeah, well, yeah. It's, it would be specifically like... Any kind of general disaster plan she was asking about, um, but then later in her survey, she asks a further question about, and then is, is there specific ones for environmental disasters? I don't know about environmental disasters. Um, we do have quite a bit of protocol concerning things like fire, like the systems in place are pretty intense, and we do have six floors of books, which means that there's just no way to feasibly get them all out, which is why we do rely on these electronic systems so much. Like we have a very advanced fire suppressant system that basically sucks all the oxygen out of the room. We have constant sensors for the humidity, like make sure there's no things for mold. But in terms of environmental disasters, 
we are in a building built in the 1980s. It was not really, like, it was built for us specifically, but it hasn't really been updated. <laughs> so it was built to house special collections and to try and account for all the things. But once again, it's like 40 years old. So I don't know how much climate was a consideration in building that environment. I don't really know what the flooding protocol would be, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was some sort of water system that we just don't know about in there. But yeah, it's hard to say because it was a building built for special collections, but it was also a very old building that was built at a time where maybe those kinds of things weren't considered. A great question, though. Thank you for asking. It's something I think probably all type those types of libraries and uh, archives need to think more about for sure. But I'd love to hear about your presentation, Dan. So my presentation uh, came from a place kind of what Maya and Alessa alluded to, in that it's pretty hard in many ways to kind of gather a bunch of the research at the intersection of climate change and libraries, in part because there isn't a whole lot of writing about it. There is, the writing does exist, but uh, it is a little harder to find versus something like collections management or intellectual freedom and information ethics. So what my research is, uh, my thesis research is attempting to create a literature review that's specifically useful to a treaty six and seven Alberta context and the libraries situated here. Uh, there's a number of reasons for that, uh, partially because it's such a broad thing, you need to set the scope somewhere, and partly because the causes and impacts of climate change are, while they're globally felt, they're kind of regionally specific. And so figuring out what are the things that are most likely to happen here, I think is useful for preparing library and archives for the future they might have to navigate. So I, like I said, it's a very broad research topic, but I simplified it down into kind of four areas. And it's kind of drawing on the reason I got into libraries in the first place, which is that I am a kind of a big believer in the mythology, I guess, or at least I came into the program with that, where I had this sense of libraries as kind of a cultural steward or the Western institution that most took on the responsibility uh, for knowledge. And libraries serve as this kind of link between community and knowledge. And so in addition to that, if we can think about climate action, we're either mitigating climate change or we're adapting to the climate impacts that result from it. So what are the ways that we can help our community mitigate and adapt to climate change? And what are the ways that we can help our knowledge and knowledge systems mitigate further climate change or adapt to the impacts? I have a question about, I guess, the Indigenous knowledge that you were able to incorporate into your research, because you said it was for specifically Treaty 6 and 7 territories. So mm -hmm. I don't know uh, where you've looked for your research, but I'm wondering, did you find any collections that maybe weren't necessarily within libraries, but were um, sort of like an Indigenous-centered approach to environmental conservation and combating climate change, because it is such a kind of integral part of a lot of Indigenous cultures around here? Uh, not to say that it doesn't exist, but I think it does speak to the limitations of Western library institutions in that uh, those sources of knowledge and those knowledge keepers do exist. And 
It is only recently that Western academia and epistemologies have recognized those sources as valid. So you can see in the latest Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, the AR6, which I think was actually officially published today, that there are a lot of references to what they refer to as traditional ecological knowledge. So it is being recognized. However, libraries is kind of a generalist discipline. We always are kind of a couple steps behind. And so there's not actually a lot of collections in the way that this knowledge is present. And specifically, I would say this knowledge is mostly present in oral traditions. I was able to speak to a few elders about non-Western perspectives on climate change. And this is going to be a cop-out, but I asked for very specific protocol and there's very specific use cases, use case scenarios for um, sharing that knowledge. And this is not one of them. Uh, It does out there. I encourage everyone, librarians, citizens to make those connections with local nations and communities and learn about all the ways that you you alluded earlier to uh, settler agriculture. Alfred Crosby talks of the logical imperialism. And so there's this very robust and specific oral tradition of knowledge describing the changes to landscape and land and weather and climate and environment that has taken place during the industrialization of the world and what it's looked like here in Treaty 6. However, because it takes place in oral traditions, which until recently haven't been recognized as, haven't been put on the same level as textual sources that are more visible to Western academia, that connection isn't quite established within settler libraries and archives yet. And it is up to us essentially to find, to build relationships with indigenous nations and communities in order to provide access to that knowledge in a way that is culturally appropriate for those knowledge keepers and their knowledge systems. I think you bring up a good point too about how the Western perspective is that libraries should be keepers of all knowledge and should give up that knowledge freely where it's it's not the same in indigenous communities whatsoever and so yeah I think it's a good idea to consider also when you talk about like uh, a reconciliation or decolonial point of view in libraries you have to consider the almost opposite viewpoints of what access to knowledge means. And you can see it kind of present in other elements of libraries. I often think about as we increasingly digitize the libraries and have these databases that are running 24-7, how much that logic of this should always be accessible for me so I can extract things from it resembles the same logic that essentially got us here in terms of all of this land should be accessible to me so I can extract things from it and how that directly led to the climate crisis. So we should be careful about applying that to our own epistemologies. Great. Well, like, like I said, lots of incredible and insightful perspectives here. I think that the, the presentations gave us all a lot to think about. I'm giving a talk on the knowledge mitigation and knowledge-based mitigation component of my thesis research, which we'll talk more about those epistemological issues that I get into there at the end at the Politics of Library 5 conference, which is happening all throughout April. 
It starts off on March the 31st with our keynote speaker, Sam Popovich. And the theme of uh, politics of libraries this year is uh, intellectual freedom and democracy. And we have four speakers, four sets of speakers starting March 31st. And it's every Friday um, at 12 Mountain Time. So yeah, we have March 31st, uh, April 14th, and uh, then April 21st, and then Dan on April the 28th. Politics of libraries on Twitter is probably the easiest way to access that if you're interested. You've been listening to Shout for Libraries. Shout for Libraries is recorded and produced on Treaty 6 territory here in Edmonton or Meskwishi, Waskahagan. Join us next month for our episode on library soundscapes. Thanks for listening. 